Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Podcast, presented by Canon Press. Welcome to the podcast. This is episode 302. I am your host, Douglas Wilson, and I am very grateful that you decided to join us. So I wanted to talk a little bit about doctrinal positions. And by doctrinal, I'm talking about theology and political position, you know, dogmas, teachings, things you hold, uh, specific dogmatic claims that you would make versus sensitivities and emphases, right? A particular position is something that you take, and then there's various sensitivities and emphases that you might have. One would be, are you in the canoe? Are you floating? Are you paddling in the canoe? And then in that canoe, are you leaning to port or to starboard a little bit? Which way are you leaning in this? I've noticed, particularly in online theological discussions, is that people will sometimes look at an emphasis or a sensitivity and then grab that and run it out to the end of the road and say, this is a rejection of the position. But it isn't. It's an emphasis within that position. So, for example, and I've seen this, uh, Trinitarian theologians uh, do this a lot. Let's say someone subscribes to the Nicene Creed. They're not a Jehovah's Witness. Jehovah's Witnesses are basically Arians. They believe they hold that Jesus Christ is a created being. They don't believe that he is Almighty God. Now, in the Nicene Creed, the church came down definitively saying that Christ is fully God, fully man. Fully God and fully man. Now, when someone says, I subscribe to the Nicene Creed, and let's say that you have no reason to doubt this person's sincerity, the person says, oh, no, no, I really agree with the Nicene Creed. Here, give me a copy of it, and I will sign it. Or better yet, give me a pin and a pen, I will prick my finger, and I will sign it in blood. I agree with the Nicene Creed. And let's say that same person preaching a sermon describes um, an appearance of the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament as a theophany, okay? And he, uh, he just says, and now I'm, I'm convinced that this angel of the Lord that Jacob wrestled, wrestled with was a theophany. It was an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. Now, let's say that he expressed it. He described this a certain way, or the three who met with Abraham on the way to the, to the destruction of Sodom, one of them a theophany and the other two angels. Now, let's say that the preacher, in the course of the sermon, used language reflecting the language of Scripture itself, but which sort of clanked against the language of Nicaea. When they describe the Lord and the two angels coming toward Abraham, let's say the preacher tarried a bit too long on the fact that they were walking. And this seemed to call into question in some one person's mind whether or not he really believes that Jesus Christ 
is fully God. Because if you believed that he was fully God, then would you have dwelt quite so long on the fact that they were walking along the road, right? So that's a matter of emphasis. And the person is, uh, but you go challenge them, you go talk to the person. Oh, no, no, fully God, omniscient, omnipresent. Give me your, the most strict statement of classical theistic definitions, and I will sign it. I agree with that. I agree with that. But I believe that God also agrees with it, and the God who agrees with it gave us language in Scripture that sometimes seems to accommodate an anthropomorphic view of things. Now, somebody might be sensitive to an emphasis and then challenge someone's adherence to the doctrine itself in ways that are unhelpful. So, distinguish between what a person affirms and what a person denies from what a person emphasizes. There are some people who say, well, Augustine is part of the Western Trinitarian tradition, and he emphasizes the unity of God as opposed to the tri-personality of God. I think it's just really unhelpful when, if someone does a word count in your, you know, you wrote a book on the Trinity, and you had two chapters on the unity of God and one chapter on the, the tri-personality of God, and you affirm all of it. But someone says, yes, but there were the, he emphasized the unity of, of God more than the other. To which I would say, so. Always will be God. So some sins are group projects. Some sins are group projects. We are all individually sinners, and so we are fully capable of sinning individually, obviously. But we are not just individuals. As one writer has expressed it, we are interdividuals. We are interdividuals. And this means that sometimes we sin corporately. We are continuing our study of hamartiology. The reason I bring this up is we're continuing to study hamartiology. And a word that represents our collective bent towards sin is this word, thorobos. T H O R U B O S. Thorobos. This word is translated two different ways in the KJV, one being tumult and the other being uproar. And this is okay because an uproar is a tumult and a tumult is an uproar. Here are examples from the treatment Jesus got before his crucifixion. When Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but rather that a tumult, thorobos, a tumult was made, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See ye to it. That's Matthew 27, 24. So Pilate was being pressured, and he was being pressured by mob action. He saw that a tumult was in process. And this was the reason they didn't arrest him openly, on the feast day. But they said, not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar among the people. That's Matthew 26, 5, and also you see it in Mark 14, 2. They didn't want to arrest Jesus during the day, particularly on a feast day, lest there be an uproar among the people. Also, I never get tired of doing this, so I'll just insert this here. It is a, a common preacher's trope to uh, talk about the fickleness of crowds on Palm Sunday. You know, um, Jesus enters Jerusalem, and the crowd welcomes him ecstatically. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
the crowd strews the the road with their cloaks and with palm branches. Uh, and then the preacher says, and yet just a few days later, the crowd is crying, crucify him, crucify him. Well, there's absolutely no reason for identifying those two crowds as being made up of the same people. You have a good indication in the Gospel of John that the Jewish leaders had rented a mob and had showed up at Pilate's house very early in the morning when the Palm Sunday crowd was probably still home in bed. In other words, one crowd was outmaneuvered by the other crowd. The Palm Sunday crowd was sincere in their love for Christ, and the the Palm Sunday crowd was uh, factored into the budget by the enemies of Christ. We don't want to arrest him on the feast day or during the day, unless there be an uproar among the people. So, this word is also used of the mourners at the house of the young girl who died. Mark 5.38. And he cometh to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and seeth the tumult, there it is, seeth the tumult, and them that wept and wailed greatly. Now, this was not necessarily a sinful behavior, weeping at the death of a young girl, but I believe that this was, in this instance, it was a collective sin. When Jesus told them that the girl was sleeping, their response was not good. They laughed him to scorn, it says, Matthew 5, 40. It was a custom, basically, um, when tragedy like the death of a young girl happened, it was a custom back then to have um, professional mourners. People would come and, and make a tumult and wail and weep and, and mourn with you. And uh, these people had showed up and they were engaging in their tumult of wailing. And Jesus says, the girl is sleeping, not dead. And so they laughed him to scorn. So they, they pivoted right away into a sinful demeanor. So I, I take it that their, their tumult was not the, uh, the same thing as the distress of the parents who had lost their young daughter. And Paul was rescued by the Romans out of one such tumult. And some cried one thing, some another, among the multitude. And when he could not know the certainty for the tumult, he commanded him to be carried into the castle. This is Acts 21.34. This is where the Roman um, officer comes down and rescues Paul from the um, court of the Gentiles, the outer court, where the riot was occurring, where the uproar was occurring, where the tumult was happening. And uh, in one corner of the temple complex was Antonia's fortress. So there was a Roman garrison fort there on the, on the temple grounds, which was most necessary for keeping order for just for incidents just like this one. So there was a tumult, and the Roman officer had to get Paul out of there. Later on, Paul denied having fomented any tumult himself. This is Acts 24.18. Whereupon certain Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with multitude nor with tumult. So I, I was not causing, I, I was not being disorderly in any way, Paul also says. And the word is also used of the riot at Ephesus. And after the uproar was ceased, Paul called unto him the disciples and embraced them and departed for to go into Macedonia. So, tumult, this is a, a group sin. There is such a thing as mob adrenaline, mob excitement, the contagion of anger or fear in a mob is a sinful corporate sort of thing. God, the 
So as we are finishing up episode 302 of the podcast, the book I want to commend to you this uh, go-round is The Boniface Option by Andrew Isker. The Boniface Option by Andrew Isker. Isker basically has had it with what he calls trash world, and he's riffing off of um, an earlier book, a book from a few years ago by Rod Dreher, where Rod Dreher saw the um, the storm clouds uh, gathering, and Rod uh, Rod Dreher argued for a um, Benedict option, where we needed to basically retreat into sort of these monastic communities, monastic centers, in order to preserve our culture and our way. And then hopefully at some point, we see the renewal of our civilization coming out of these Benedictine centers. The challenge is, the problem is, even though during the time the Benedictine order was established, there was a lot of disorder and a lot of chaos, there was also a lot of territory, and the population sizes weren't nearly what they are. So uh, the, the population of the world is numbers in the billions right now. And it was possible, for example, if things were really bad in England, it would have been possible for Rod Dreher to write a, a book, The Benedict, Benedict Option, as a way of recruiting people to go settle in Massachusetts. Because it, it really was possible to withdraw and put an ocean in between you and the persecuting authorities. And the persecuting authorities didn't have really the reach to get at you there. It was, it was possible to withdraw into a gated community of the faithful. The Benedict Order was actually a possibility. And when the Benedict or, Benedictine Order was first established, there was a certain respect that was um, paid to the monks who withdrew like that. But we are living in a world where there's nowhere to go. There are physical spaces where we could go, but the, the world is inhabited. The governments claim all territories, and they will not allow you to engage in the Benedictine option. The Benedictine option is, uh, depends upon somebody agreeing to leave you alone for a bit. And uh, we are living in a time where the totalitarians, the advocates of what I call totalitolerance, are not about to leave us alone, not even for a little bit. Now, correspondingly, what Andrew Isker has done in the Boniface option is to argue for a strategy of direct confrontation. Instead of retreating to a, an enclave in the woods, uh, there to await the uh, SWAT team's arrival, and then, and then have the confrontation when we're in a defensive posture and back on our heels. Instead of doing that, Isker argues for the Boniface option. And uh, this option is named for St. Boniface, who, when confronted, he was a missionary, um, a, a traveling monk, a missionary. When he was um, confronted with the tr a tree sacred to the god Thor, what he did is he went and got an axe and chopped it down. That's the Boniface option. If we're going to have a confrontation, let's have it now. And if we're going to have a confrontation, 
let's have it with you on the defensive and me as the Christian uh, holding the axe, me as the Christian on the offense. So this is basically, uh, I would say, the basic difference between Dreyer's book and Isker's book. They both identify, uh, Isker is vehement in his uh, condemnations of the world as it has become. He calls it trash world, uh, inhabited by bug men. And, and Dreyer doesn't write that way. Dreyer is not as confrontational. But think of it this way. The Benedict option is our football team playing defense, trying to keep them from scoring. The Boniface option is our football team, and we have the ball. And Isker wants us to go to an air game. And he doesn't want, he's not really content with um, three yard carry, one three yard carry after another. He wants to throw the ball down the field. He, want, he wants to shoot the moon. He wants to have us attempt some audacious things because that's what Boniface did. When Boniface chopped down the uh, tree sacred to Thor, it, that was an exercise in audacity. So, uh, the Boniface option is a it's a quick read. It's not a not a massive tome. Isker writes well. He is outraged by the things he should be outraged by. He emphasizes the duty that we have to to hate what they've. Uh, the, the world's always been a fallen world. The world's always had, had horrific things in it. But what we have what we are doing is we're being taught to have the grimy side of town become the whole town, to applaud and celebrate the things that used to be done only in secret and furtively. So, Andrew Isker's at war with all that. It's a short read. It's an engaging read. And I think you will be invigorated by it. Mm-hmm.